A reading from the book of Psalms. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it in the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessings from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it is great to see you today. Today's message is titled, Our Best Living. But before we begin, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. So please bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, I pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I just want to give recognition where it's due as it relates to the topic I'm going to tackle. And today's message has been informed quite greatly by Robert Morris, Tim Keller, and John Ortberg. And I especially want to say that I am going to be pulling from Robert Morris's book, The Blessed Life. So with that being said, let me start with a question. How do you approach the practice of giving? How do you approach the practice of giving? Now, as I ask that question, I realize speaking about giving in a church, it, it causes a lot of hairs to stand on one's neck. And when I think about the topic of giving and church, I think of big hair and lots of lipstick. I think of big houses and airplanes that were and I can just assure you today that we do not intend to pursue any of those avenues with giving. But rather, we want to pursue God's heart from his word. So let me ask again, how do you approach the practice of giving? We're in the season of Halloween. We're in the season of fall. And just this last week, I received a... Uh, a recollection of a funny story from Minnesota. For those who don't know, my wife is from Minnesota and her sister just moved into a new neighborhood. And um, with that came an idea. Hey, new neighborhood, time for Halloween, trick or treat. How about we boo some people to get to know some people? Now, some of you might not know what booing is. I didn't know what booing is till recently, and here's what it is. It, it is when you knock on someone's door, plant a basket or bag of candy on their doorstep, and run. You run away. And the goal is to surprise them and to bless them. And in the little basket or in the bag, you leave a little note that says, you've been booed. Now you need to go boo somebody else. And my sister-in-law, Fonda, thought, wow, what a great way to connect with other neighbors. And so she convinced her, her little kids that they should go boo 
some neighbors. And with that, um, they prepped their candy bag and they went to the first neighbor's house and unfortunately the neighbor's on the porch. And so they just acted like they were walking by and they went to another neighbor and no one was on the front porch. And so Fonda sent her son, who's nine, up the stairs to ring the doorbell, to knock on the door, to boo the neighbor, only to watch their seven-year-old daughter or her seven-year-old daughter run up after her son and start pulling at the bag as he's knocking on the door. And of course, this is getting a little out of hand as they start to play tug-of-war with the bag of candy. And both of them are saying, no, let me boo the neighbor. And Fonda starts to walk up the stairs only to watch her little four-year-old son run up past her and say, that's my candy. And he rips at the bag or the basket. And they, there's a three-person tug-of-war going on. And then what do you know happens? The neighbor opens the door and says, can I help you? You see, the truth of the matter is we all approach the topic of giving in different ways. For Fonda's two oldest children, they wanted to be the first to give. And then for her youngest son, he didn't want to give it all. He wanted to enjoy that basket or bag of candy by himself. The Bible teaches differently about this topic. And to summarize our message today, I believe the Bible teaches this simple yet profound truth. Our best living is found in giving. Let me repeat that. Our best living is found in giving. Why? Because giving connects us to God's will, God's ways, and God's wealth. Let's unpack these three truths. Number one, giving connects us to God's will. How important is the topic of money to God? There are more than 500 verses in the Bible concerning prayer and nearly 500 concerning faith, but there are more than 2,000 verses on the subject of money and possessions. Jesus talked about money in 16 of his 38 parables. Clearly, from the Bible's standpoint, we need to understand money and how to handle it. And this is a quote according to Robert Morris. 16 of Jesus' 38 parables dealt with money. 2,000 verses in the Bible deal with money. Giving connects us to God's will and really to God's word. To begin understanding God's will on money, we must begin with the principle of the first fruits. We read in Exodus 13 these words, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine, says the Lord. See, the idea here was God was calling the people of Israel to give their firstborn, both of their families and their animals. 
And in fact, if the firstborn animal wasn't whole, if there was something wrong with it, the Israelites were instructed to replace that animal with a whole, pure, unblemished animal. And in so doing, that firstborn would redeem the rest of the family or the rest of that flock. And the firstborn had to be sacrificed or redeemed in the Old Testament as it relates to animals. You see, if we're to understand the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, we need to understand this principle of firstborns. God is a God of justice. And in that he's a God of justice, if there's wrongdoing, we cry out, God, deal with the wrongdoing. And yet God is also a God of love. And like a, a wonderful father, he extends mercy. And so with the people of Israel and this whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, this idea of offering forth the firstborn was God's mean, uh, means of extending or offering his sovereignty and care to the people of Israel to say, listen, when you mess up, instead of me wielding my kind of justice towards you or at you, I will allow you to substitute an unblemished lamb or an unblemished bull for punishment. And in so doing, I will extend not just my justice, but my love by allowing you to substitute this firstborn for you. And this idea of love and God's sovereignty extended to the people of Israel is really summarized in Leviticus 17, verse 11. We read these words, for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So the point is this, the giving of one's first fruits or firstborn was an extension of God's love and sovereignty towards his chosen people. But it wasn't just towards animals. It was towards the harvest fields that the Israelites um, would grow. We read in Exodus 23, the first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord, your God. So the idea here is not just to say, hey, bring forth your unblemished bull, your firstborn bull or lamb, your firstborn to me. Set it apart for me. The idea is to bring first. The, the harvest, the best of our harvest to God. And what's interesting here in Exodus 23 is there's a defined order and a defined recipient that we read about. The first of the first fruits of your land, you shall bring where? Into the house of the Lord your God. Now, I want to pause and just confess something to you. Early in my Christian life and early in my marriage, Carly and I, as we began trying to understand tithing and generosity and, and God's word around this, 
we would just kind of randomly give to this cause over here. Or if we kind of liked our church in the moment, we'd give to our church. Or we'd give quarterly and sometimes we'd back up and we'd get way behind. And then at the end of the year, we'd look at our giving and we'd say, oh, we want to give as much as possible, as close to 10% as possible. And we'd just select some random things. And the truth of the matter uh, is that we were being led by kind of our subjective feelings. We weren't being led by the principle or the pattern laid out in God's word where he says, bring the first of the first fruits of whatever you make, whatever you grow, whatever you harvest, bring it where? Into my house. A defined order and recipient. Bring the firstborn or the first of your first fruits to me. Moreover, we read in Malachi 3, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So here, just so those of you who didn't grow up in the church understand, this word tithe, bring the full tithe, is translated 10%. Bring the first 10% of whatever you make, whatever you harvest, where? Into my house, into my church. And more than just a defined percentage, there's this interesting promise of blessing. Now, a little story from this last summer. Many of you took part in the land project when we had the opportunity in faith to purchase just under eight acres of land that would serve as the future home of our church. And as we presented the opportunity and invited you guys to pray, um, I had a gentleman pledge a certain amount. I had, he was one of the first out of the gate, if you will. And somehow, in three weeks, we not only raised enough money, we surpassed the amount of money we needed to raise to purchase the land. And yet, ironically, when it came time for this particular individual to back up his pledge and give the amount that he felt God was saying to give, he was struggling. But ultimately, he said, you know what? In faith, I pledge this amount, and I'm going to see it through. Well, over the next 30 days, this person who, by the way, this whole idea of blessing, he's skeptical to. Over the next 30 days, he ends up receiving a bonus eight times the amount of his pledge. Malachi 3 says, And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And clearly this gentleman was blessed beyond belief. In fact, he was embarrassed for multiple reasons to share this account with me. His wife shared it with me. I had to track him down. Why? Well, number one, he was reluctant to give initially. But number two, this whole idea of blessing, it really kind of turns him sideways. He, 
hates any idea of health and wealth gospel. And look, Scripture's almost mysterious with this word blessing. So let me just air this right here. We, we preached earlier this fall on Philippians 1 where it basically says you've been granted the opportunity to suffer. Another way of looking at that is you've been blessed to suffer for the gospel. We read from the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. So let me make clear, this is not a health and wealth message. But I do believe this idea of blessing is this. God promises to be with you and for you as you trust in him with the very best of what you bring, with the very first of your first fruits. That is the idea. Point number one, giving connects us to God's will as we see in God's word. Through the principle of first fruits, we learn to live into this principle of trusting in God's sovereignty and love. Number two, giving connects us to God's ways. Let me ask a question. Why do you think God created giving? Do you think he, he needs your money? Do you think he needs your resource? Well, we read in Psalm 50, he owns all the animals. He owns a, all the cattle on a thousand hills. So clearly, he doesn't need our generosity. So why did he create giving? I believe he created giving to reveal his very heart to us. We read in John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How about the words from John the Baptist in the early pages of John when Jesus is being baptized, John sees Jesus and he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see the importance of that declaration? Do you see how it connects to the principle of God's will, the principle of the first fruits. In Jesus, we are given God's very first, God's very best, God's very son, because he loves us. In the words of Robert Morris, quote, in a very real sense, Jesus was God's tithe. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus himself is given to us to atone for our sins, not just once, but forever. In the words of theologians, this is called God's substitutionary atonement. He gave his only son to cover our sins. Why? Because he loves us. 
And giving connects us not only to the heart of God, it allows us to extend that heart or that love to others. When I met Carly, my wife, time stood still. I met her at Wheaton College. Some of you have heard this story, but I think it's important to share as it reveals something. You know, I was a junior. She she was a senior. We had been dating for, gosh, a month, maybe two months. And um, my world was upside down. And she came to me and she said, Paul, I, I just need to let you know something. I'm about to sign a contract to go be a missionary in South America for a few years after I graduate. And the holy side of me said out loud, wow, that's great. But my heart was going, what are you thinking? You can't go. And she went on to explain that she was carrying significant college debt. And through this opportunity that um, her debt would be taken care of if she were to go and teach overseas for a few years. And they would provide living expenses, but they'd also, after a select number of years, pay off her student loans. So I thought to myself, what do I do? I've been dating her, what, month and a half, two months. And so I started praying. And I started seeking wise counsel. And I came to the conclusion that I didn't want to go on without her. Nor did I want to wait several years for her to come back. I remember calling my dad, my family, and saying, she's the one. And I I think I'm going to ask for her hand in marriage. And so my aunt at the time would go to these estate sales and she would often come across wedding rings. And and I said, hey, Aunt Sherry, can you look for a ring for us? And sure enough, she called me and she said, Paul, I, I think I found the perfect ring. And I said, thanks, Sherry. Like, tell me more about it. And she told me all these things about the diamond. And gosh, I was so excited. And then I said, what's the price? And she told me the price. And I, I said, Sherry, I, I can't afford that. I said, thanks so much. I, I guess I've just got to go back to prayer. Later that night, I end up getting a call from my grandfather. Turns out my aunt had called my grandfather and shared what was going on. And my grandfather was a tough guy from Chicago. He's the one that taught me walk softly but carry a big stick, which to me meant clobber someone if they're not nice to you or others, but otherwise be humble. I don't think that's what that means, but nonetheless, that's what I took it to mean. So here's the tough guy. I called him Duda. Duda's on the phone. I said, hey, Duda. Now keep in mind, Duda, I don't think ever called me in my entire life until that night. And he says, Paul, I've heard about your desire to ask Carly uh, for her hand in marriage, and I've heard about this ring, and I want to let you know um, your grandmother, Nana, and I want to help you purchase the ring. I could not believe it. I still can't believe it. My grandfather was so tough and so cheap that he had my grandma on a budget. 
There was this one time where she didn't budget correctly and she ran out of gas on Highway 27. He heard about it and he's like, good luck. <laughs> but in this moment, something was different. He said, we want to help you through buying this ring and securing this relationship. You see, in that moment, the generosity of others changed the very trajectory, trajectory of our lives. The generosity of Nana and Duda changed my life. And it, it not only changed the trajectory of my life, I left that conversation realizing I didn't just want to receive from them. One day I wanted to be like them. And I think that's God's heart for us when we join him in generosity. You see, giving not only connects us to God's will, it connects us to his ways and to his heart. Point number three, giving connects us to God's wealth. What do I mean by this? Well, we read in Matthew chapter six, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven for neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me ask a simple question. What matters most in this room? What matters most in this city? And what matters most in this world? People. What God is saying is, don't worry about what you're dressing like or what you're living like or how you're presenting yourself to the world, glamming it up. Invest how I invest, by investing in people. That which is eternal. You see, true riches in God's economy are measured in changed lives. Nothing more and nothing less. Giving connects us to God's wealth, the pinnacle of his creation, people. And as you give, your giving ripples to eternity, is what he's saying here. Thinking back to Duda's last days, Duda has passed on, something drastically changed in him. I'd like to think that his generosity towards me started to change his heart. We read, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because near the end of his life, he became a Christian. He shifted from wanting to protect his wealth to wanting to provide with his wealth. He ended up helping build a church he ended up helping pay off college loans of others that couldn't afford it. God grabbed his heart, and through grabbing his heart, he 
unleashed the wealth that was under Duda's stewardship to impact lives for eternity. You see, when we understand God's wealth in that it's people, it's not our possessions, it's not how much power or prestige we have, things change for us. We no longer have the need to possess. We no longer have the need to impress. Rather, we have a growing desire to bless. In the words of Chris Willard, an author on this idea of biblical generosity, he writes, Generosity is always about what God wants for people, not from them. So here's the deal. It's very simple, but it's quite profound. Our best living, it's found in giving. For giving connects us to God's will, God's ways, in God's wealth. So where do you and your family stand on this topic at this very moment? I hope through this message, if nothing else, you're informed about God's word on giving. God's word to us, to his people. Bring me your first fruits, the first of your first fruits. Let me unleash my heart for you and through you to others through this process. And together, let's touch eternity and change lives. So, next steps. Number one, I invite everyone here and anyone who listens to this message to trust God with your all and your everything beginning with the first of your first fruits. Which leads to next step number two. For those who call the Daniel Island Fellowship home, for those who have joined us as DIFF founders, Daniel Island Fellowship founders, I invite you to not only understand this principle of tithing and first fruits, but to join us in it to begin looking at your finances and separating the very first 10% right when the paycheck hits and separating that for the house of the Lord. I believe, in the words of Chris Willer, generosity is about what God wants to do for you. God wants to unleash his heart, his love, not just to you, but through you. And it doesn't end with generosity. It begins with generosity. Malachi 3. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I... Thank you for new beginnings. I thank you for new insight. God, I, I just want to say on behalf of all of us that 
You are sovereign, you are Lord, and you are loving, so thank you. God, I pray, beginning with my heart and my family, that we would collectively trust you with the first of our first fruits. May we take this principle seriously because objectively it shows where we stand with you and how much we love and trust you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.